I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And today we have special guests, Elisa Camera. Hi. And Michael Ivey. Hi, everyone. And we are here to talk about uh, We Came in Peace, a documentary you guys made about the Marines' experience in and after Lebanon. Uh, so 82 to 84 is kind of the dates you guys pick out for your uh, for your movie there. But uh, it's a kind of a broad-reaching topic. So I'm really looking forward to this, uh, learning about Lebanon, Beirut, movie making, wherever we go with it. Um, I am excited to get into this. But before we get into the specifics of We Came in Peace, can we talk a little bit about what brought you guys together to make We Came in Peace reality? Sure. Lisa, you want to go first? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, I would have to say uh, divine intervention. Um, and I would have to give all the credit to my brother, USMC Sergeant Mikot Camera, who was killed in the Beirut bombing of 1983 in Beirut. And um, we grew up in West Virginia. And Michael also has roots in West Virginia. And um, he became aware of my book, American Brother and reached out to me and um, said, you know, if, if you ever want to do something together, collaborate to, you know, do it in the film genre, let me know. And years and years passed and, you know, I ended up writing children's books and, you know, life got in the way. And then I had a Marine come to me and ask me one day in Pooler, Georgia, at a continental breakfast <laughs> in a very small hotel. And um, he said, is there anything, could you do something to help share our story? Could you please do something to tell our story so we're not forgotten? And um, I took it to heart and uh, he had tears in his eyes and I've grown to love each one of these Beirut Marines um, tremendously. And I said, okay, I said, we will. I will do something. And I got in the car um, and reached out to Michael and said, it's time. It's time. And then from there, we got the ball rolling and Michael, go ahead. <laughs> well, so I got to back up because it's been, I know it's been seven years ago because I got the book you sent me and autographed and wrote the date. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but actually there were other people there's been a number of people, I guess, tried to make a movie or want to make a movie. Some people had contacted me um, that I met. I'm a commercial director. I usually work in the commercial field. And um, and I just couldn't wrap my head around it because I was very aware of what happened in Beirut. And the reason being Elisa's brother, Mikot, camera. And the thing was, we're all, I'm the same age as all these guys. I'm from about a county, there's a county between us in West Virginia where we grew up. A lot of my friends went to this little college in Southern West Virginia called Concord College. And I think Mecott started out in Concord College before he figured out he wanted to be a Marine. I mean, I know he's a guy that decided to be a Marine. He could be anything he wanted to be, but these people just loved him. All my friends just loved him. And I didn't realize for a young single construction worker that a teacher's college I think Marines call it a target-rich environment, you know? Like, <laughs> I started going and hanging out with my buddies the year, I guess, Mikot had just, you know, he went the year before and then joined the Marine Corps. But I kept hearing Mikot stories everywhere. And this would have been, you know, like 79 or 80. So I, I was, you know, you kind of hear stories about people and you realize 
it's like the best friend you never met. You know, yeah, they're yeah. so similar of a lot of interests. Not that I claim that I would have ever been a Marine or try to be a Marine. I, I have the utmost respect, but we were both um, river people. He worked as a guide on a section of river. Um, I guided on the New River and Golly River in West Virginia. You know, um, it, 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 it's sort of and hunting and fishing and all those things you do. But then later in life, when I got into graphic design and then later in the film, um, I was doing brochure cards. And one of my clients was a guy in Hinton, West Virginia, where Elise and her brother's from. And on the front of his boat, it said Meekot. So then here is as a client and another bunch of friends, you know, I heard all these great Meekot stories. So and then I was around, you know, um, I was around my other friends, you know, my high school friends and the friends I'd made their friends in college. Um, you know, when the we, we were still just all partying and getting together when the bombing took place. So again, I I knew they just didn't tell stories about guy. I knew how deeply they love this guy. So it always, you know, something like that sticks with you. You just um, you know, it's it's a friend's friend, but um, so when I met these other people, I sent them, I said, look, if you're going to do something, go to Hinton, West Virginia and look up this camera family. I knew just from my friends, I knew that the, the uh, Elisa's dad was a doctor in town and I knew their um, Filipino or Mikat joked around and said he was a member of some Indian tribe. You know, they were. Well, um, but, you know, in southern West Virginia, if you're a brown person and the community accepts you, you're you're really accepted because um, it is a lot of there's, there's small mindedness. There's racist people. But I just knew, like, the whole family was going to be cool. And it's West Virginia. When I said, just go to Hinton, West Virginia and ask anybody for the camera family and they're going to tell you where to find them. That's kind of how it works, you know. Um so that's how I actually got to know Elisa because they went there. They, you know, and then um, she sent me the book and we got we met and I kind of knew those people already had a vision for what they were doing. And I was just like, I'm I'm not it's it's not going to work. And I knew at the time I couldn't wrap my head around it because I knew how tragic, you know, I knew how tragic it was from one person. I couldn't I still can't wrap my head around when, when you think of everybody, you know, you're pushing 300 people, probably you're over 300 people. If you think about the lives people led and the sickness, and the stress and the PTSD and whatever happened. I mean, you know, it's this devastating, tragic thing. So yeah, we don't we don't live on islands, right? Like everybody, yeah. it's there's interconnectedness there. And it's horrible. And I told Elise at the time, I said, you know what, I'm I'm not gonna these people have a vision. I'm not going to do this. But if I can ever help you in any way, because I've learned a little bit of stuff in 30 years of doing this. But if I don't know, I know very honest people like, you know, a good friend that's helping us on the movie. She's an attorney that owns a production company. So and I know she's just honest because I work with her since I think 2005 or 2006. You know, it's just I told her, I said, don't sign anything because it would be very easy to sign your brother's life story away and not even know it. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm probably interrupting. Is um is is all of these Marines that were in Beirut, um, and the most especially the ones that came home, they live with it every day. Every day they live with, you know, the mission was supposed to be peacekeeping, but 
it was so different than the portrayal. My brother would send letters going, we're okay, it's okay, don't worry about me. But now the more research that Michael's done and the more uh, closer we get to the film being released, um, you know, they come home and they live with a lot of tragedy. You know, a lot of, even before the bombing in October, there was the bombing in April. There were people getting, there were Marines getting shot at. And when this particular Marine, Dan Brown, looked at me and said, can you tell our story? You know, first and foremost, I want to do it to honor my brother. That's the, that's the first key is I, I want to honor my brother. He wasn't allowed to come home. He was killed. And I think if he were here, he would be doing what I'm doing. It's just, he wasn't allowed to come home. He was killed. But not only for them that were killed, but the ones that come home, you know, I, I'm praying some of this out of the film, something to come out of the film will be that um, it will give them peace. It will give them, you know, a sense of cohesiveness and a sense of family because, you know, um, they told me one, a few of them have said, you've lost your brother, but you've gained a platoon and then some, of brothers that will always have your back. And um, and I feel exactly the same for them. So when they asked me, can you do something to help us? I'm like, absolutely. So I got on the phone and called Michael and um, we got the ball rolling together. So I think Michael's the perfect person for this because of his extreme passion, compassion, um, and respect for the, for the Marines that he's interviewing. There's no narrators in our documentary. There's no actors. There's no reenactments. This is truly these Marines telling their story. And we wanted to keep it that way. And um, I know that is what my brother would have wanted if he were he were doing this. Um, I'm just trying to do it for him because he wasn't, he's not here to do it. Yeah. It's such an, uh, I mean, how serendipitous, though, that Michael, I mean, you grew up, I guess, in your college years, like, with Mika in your orbit and understanding or just sort of being immersed in his life and the the influences that he had and how, uh, and, and I, I guess, just, you know, flash forward to today, uh, we're seeing his influence still existing, but you were living that influence even as a young guy without realizing, you know, I, I guess it's, I'm, I'm sort of stumbling over my words because it's such a profound statement that before you dove into his life, you were already feeling his influence. And now here you are influenced right. by him and, and doing that for us. Right. But, you know, what you got to know is Mikat is the catalyst, but even when Elisa, you know, first she calls me, she runs into this Marine, Dan Brown, who says, and Elisa has been an author. So she shows up on social media because Mike Pence decides to have one of her books in the White House Library. I can brag on her like she, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's cool, right? I mean, I don't care what your politics are. That's the White House Library and that's the Vice President of the United States. And so here is, a, and we're in a weird political time, right? We can't help it. But but again, then Elisa shows up and she's met Gary Sinise. So, and we know what good work his foundation does. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Marine sees her and says, here's somebody that can get it done. What he doesn't realize is, you know, like the rest of us, she just puts her head down and works hard and figures out how to get it done. It just it, it just had worked out that we had spoke. And then I, the, then when she called me, 
She goes, well, I ran this Marine. She goes, 90 seconds ago. She goes, what would you do, you know, to make this film? And I said, well, the first thing I would do, and, and I still feel this way for anybody wanting to tell a story, you know, if there was money in the story, probably Hollywood's going to make it three times already, especially yeah. something at that time that was, you know, at least 35 years, 30, 34 years before when we started this. Um, so I said, you, you got to like, you know, you do what we call a one sheet that sort of explains everything. And you use that to tell people the story, but also to raise money. I said, you know, um, I said, so the thing, the first thing you do, though, is realize that this is going to be made $100, $50 at a time. There isn't Hollywood money. So yeah. you're going to need to set up a nonprofit or not for profit. So at least people's hard earned money, they can write it off on their taxes. So her, Elisa's deal is forward march, you know, and, and, and she says, I'll get back to you. And it was at least six or seven months later, she calls me back. She goes, okay, I got a foundation now. I named it after my book, the American Brother Foundation. Um, it's the American Brother Foundation. I said, oh, great, you know. She goes, now what you would, what would you do? I said, well, I make this one sheet, what we call a one sheet. I explained that. I'd raise enough money. By this time, you know, I had finished Colonel Garrity's book. I said, I'd find this Timothy Garrity cat because he's probably a documentary just on his own. Yeah, you know? and, the book, and the book is written not like a novel. It, to me, it's written like a Marine mission that you mm -hmm. would document. It's very thorough. You know, I, I knew the guy was smart and, and something special to even get the command to begin with, right? So um, she goes, well, yeah, I love Colonel Garrity. I, you know, because I didn't realize what the Beirut family was all about and how people meet each other through the years. You know, I didn't know the family aspect of it, mm. which, which is all powerful, you know, yeah. um, as is the Marine Corps family, right? So this is the subset of the bigger family, which is very powerful. And, and, and you got to respect power, you know? <laughs> so, so, so the thing is with that, it, it was, it was just like, um, she goes, you know, so she goes, I would do that. And she goes, then what would you do? I said, well, I'd take Colonel Garrity, get him interviewed, come back, cut it together into something to show a trailer. And then I'd go down this checklist. I'd find this Lieutenant Colonel Gerlach. And then I'd find the next person and I'd try to find some French and I'd try to find Jim Webb and, you know, like, uh, and, and she goes, well, would you do that? And, you know, at that point it's like, well, hell, I, I know how, you know, I figured it out because before I was afraid to touch it, it's such a tragedy. But then when I, I kind of said, look, I would let the Marines tell the story and not just the Marines, we, any American there that was around somebody that sacrificed, you know, we lost a CIA station in the embassy bombing. We lost diplomats. We, you know, we, we lost a lot of people in Lebanon. We lost Navy corpsmen. We almost lost, a, you know, a chaplain who was in the mm -hmm. building. I interviewed Danny Wheeler. I mean, it, it sort of goes on and on of, of how important it is to tell the story. And nobody had done it. To me, it was shocking. So I was like, yeah, you know what? I said, here is the here's the stipulation. I read your book and I can't do this film and make it about your brother. I said, mm -hmm. it can't. And, and, and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. She goes, not at all. It's about the all, all of his brothers. She said, because she said he loved the Marine Corps. 
as more than anything. So it's the Marine story. So I think a lot of people- That's what he would have wanted. He would have wanted that. He yeah. he was a true Marine and Marines have that spirit with them. It's not about the individual. Meekop wouldn't want it to be about him. He would want it to be about all, all of his Marine brothers. I didn't want to, yeah, I don't want to like throw that out there that it even sounds like, and, and, you know, Leatherneck Magazine just did an article, which is great. There's a lot of Elisa pictures of her with her brother, of course, but I hope people can realize like, no, it's not the sister story, right. the brother. And yeah. it's, it's the, it's the people who were in Beirut at the time yeah. telling the story of what happened now because there isn't much that exists in the, in, you know, there's a lot of books. I probably own 80 books now, right, that I've been doing the research on this, but there's not films which are most accessible for people. You know, it's like, we know the history of the Vietnam War is going to be told by Oliver Stone more than Ken Burns, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, even as we're looking at the trailer, I mean, the Marines themselves met, will mention how even within our own culture, our band of brothers, our oh, no one left behind and always faithful, it still gets glossed over. I mean, we have Absolutely. battle streamers. There's, you know, um, markings on the Iwo Jima Memorial and all these things. So, I mean, there is recognition, but it's always sort of sandwiched in between these other campaigns where like, yes. oh, hoorah, hoorah, Semper yeah. Fi, go, you know, gung-ho, and then, oh, uh, and Beirut. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well said, spot on. Yeah. They, they, were, they were left behind, but, you know, I, so I have a brother that's retired dust-off pilot. And he was in the Air Force first, had a job jumping out of helicopters with Army guys. And then like 10 years in, they talk him into whatever you guys call it, cross deck or whatever. He became a warrant officer in the Army and started flying helicopters and, and being the every crappy place in the world where there's any conflict, that's where you're going to send dust off, right? It's a medevac for people mm -hmm. to yep. dust off. So, you know, he had a lot of, has a lot of respect for Marines because Marines at that time which wasn't that long ago, there wasn't MARSOC or any of this special forces Marines. Every Marine was special forces. So Marines were going all the time and going to jump school with Army guys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I talked to one um, retired intelligence, a retired major in intelligence who was after Beirut, a guy named Neil Duckworth, because I needed a Marine whisperer because I didn't know how to approach talking to military people and, you know, without... <laughs> I didn't want to piss them off. I, last thing I want in the world is a bunch of Marines pissed off at me, and I don't want to be disrespectful. So, but, you know, Duckworth, like, he was big help. He will be a big help in the future as well. Um, but the thing is, is, it's just like my brother said, look, he goes, here's all I can tell you about the Marines from knowing Marines. He goes, um, you know, he said, the, the Marines, he goes, yeah, man, just it's like they're all special forces. They're all a lot alike. He goes, but the biggest thing the Marine Corps does better than anybody, and I apologize to Chuck Dallahy and some of these officers who hate this, but it's such a strong statement, and you'll understand as a Marine. He said, the Marines know how to weaponize pride. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said, just don't forget that where you're in the military and you fight the person beside you on each side in the foxhole. He said, every Marine fights for every Marine going back to some tavern. It's 1775 yep. called Tun Tavern in Philadelphia. He goes, they've got that weight on them and they get it right. So yeah. the sad thing is 
I don't think Beirut, because it was such a political mission that became a military mission, you know, the situation changed, but the mission didn't. There's a lot of mission building things here that have mm. never really been put under the microscope. And the reason I mentioned my brother is because he flew dust off and he said, look, he goes, we took at least small arms fire every time you flew from like Tikrit to Baghdad or any other place he was at, you know, he said, but after Mogadishu, the army put that mission under the microscope. He said, so we flew when the crew chief does his checklist, we started, we did stuff there from Mogadishu. And, and my brother said this, he says, you, you got to stick with this because there's still lessons to be learned from Beirut. He said, and it is that putting it under the microscope instead of just putting it under the magnifying glass for a minute. So I don't know if that's true. I, I wouldn't say that, I, I, that I know how the Marine Corps works, but I will say I have gotten... I read everything I get my hands on. I find these websites of where Marines go to advanced degrees and they write a thesis. There's so many of them on force protection, right? Like it's, and they always mention Beirut. That's how this stuff comes up. But if you remember at this airport in this Afghanistan, 13 Marines, right? What the hell? So, well, I mean, and I, I'm, I'm a victim of that as well. Um, I, and I'm no, you know, scholar or academic when it comes to history, but I think we all try to immerse ourselves in the lessons learned from Beirut because there is so much that's still relevant today. Um, but you just fall into, um, I, you know, and I don't want to say bad practice, but I mean, essentially that's what it is. But <laughs> for us, uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I mean, you just, you're so immersed um, you know, you're in an outpost. I, I was in Marja at the time, and you're just in an outpost that's just immersed in the comings and goings, and you become overly familiar with folks. And you just, we're very, as Americans, we are very trusting. There, there is uh, clearly there's a there's a distancing, there's a bit of a standoff, and you can make arguments towards exceptionalism, all these things. But at the end of the day, when you have, you know, Marine in the town and then you have people living in the town, there's going to be a bonding, a trusting, a, a shared experience. Yeah, and so we absolutely. had we had kids that would come around and of course Marines, yeah. you're away from your families. We got kids and there's right. kids here and they're awesome and they're so exactly. fun and we're all yeah. learning from each other and this and that. Yeah. Well one day we were on patrol and I mean less than a click away from our CP was a sand table of our CP to the detail where the posts were, where the the uh, oh, the COC was, where the barracks were, you know, where the Marines, I mean, wow. where the gym was. I mean, it was insane. Wow. And so, so they, a stand table is like a tabletop exercise. It's, it's just, just a yeah, something in, in the dirt that was basically a miniature uh, wow. di, uh, diorama of our compound. Wow. So, of course, we scrapped it, and then we had to, you know, we had to vet all the locals who were coming in to, you know, help with whatever. But I mean, that I really got an, a wedge between us and sort of the community. But at the same time, it it was really bad force protection. I was obviously I have the OIC of that outpost. So, I mean, it's on me. Uh, but it was really hard to not fall into that. And it was actually really hard to kick them all out. Like even then, it wasn't like, oh, you sons of bitches, you know, right. and like start beating them all with newspapers. Or it was just like. Oh, dude, you can't you, you can't come in anymore. Yeah. I, I'm really yeah. sorry. 
you just can't come in. Um, and, and we lost sight of that. Um, but anyways, that's well, all. But that James is true. I know my brother would send letters home to us. He would send letters even home to our Catholic priest, as a matter of fact, and he would ask for us to send balloons and candies yeah. for the Lebanese children because they would reach their hands over the bob wire and um, they wanted they wanted to be able to give them something. So my brother would always ask us to send, would, would want balloons and candy so we could give the Lebanese children. So yes, you're a fierce fighting force, but at the, like exactly like you were saying, Vic, at the same time, you, you're with the people in a small town and you want to portray a peaceful nature, but you are a Marine and you are trained to fight. You are trained to kill and being subjective uh, or subjected to Beirut as a peacekeeper. And for you as well, you know, Afghanistan that you wanted, you were in a small town, you want to be nice. You know, um, sometimes there's a very fine line. And I think Beirut, um, when when the people there were feeling threatened, is when things took a took a horrible turn, and we continued with our peacekeeping mission, but at the loss of very many Marines and military people that didn't come home. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, I mean, we are Marines. We're trained, well, you know, hard as woodpecker lips, all that good stuff. Yeah. But we're also people, uh, and that it's really hard. Good to point. sort of bifurcate your life well, that way, even when you're. That's a good point. Good point. You know, one of one of my big lessons here. I didn't know what I thought. You know, I've got a retired Marine uncle, right? Vietnam era. Went in in '58. Spent a lot of time overseas, and you know, I was like as a kid, just afraid of him. You know, so I just thought, you know, because again, I didn't understand a guy coming back from Vietnam, that look in their eyes and, you know, I'm a little fat kid and here this Marine is, he did, you know, he didn't like anybody fat, you know, so you got screwed with, you know, but I just, but it got nothing but respect for him more. It grows more. But at the time I didn't really know what I thought about a Marine, you know? Uh, and I think as a civilian, I didn't know how small of a force, I didn't know how tight of a force. I didn't know what made a Marine. And the one thing I didn't know that I've discovered is, and this and this is a fatal flaw as when you get into the war fighting side, as far as I'm concerned, um, the, the, the fatal flaw is Marines, everything you do is based on helping people. Now, you can say, oh, they're the killer, but nobody joins the Marine to be a badass. Everybody I've talked to joins the Marine to challenge themselves and be the best. And then it's to help people, whether that be an evacuation, toys for tots or going and calling yourself a peacekeeper or taking the beach, you know, even though you're trained to kill, 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 that's that's really a byproduct of what you're trying to do to help people. So if you have the mindset and you're wired to go in and help, how can you understand somebody that's been fighting for 2000 years mm -hmm. between neighbors? And, and one guy in the documentary puts it great because he goes you know oh you have the amal fighting the druze and the druze fighting this one that and he said it's akin to the protestants fighting the baptist and the baptist fighting the catholic and one day the catholic and the protestants team up and fight the you know and and yeah how do we understand we're not wired that way right, right? so right. yeah even in beirut even in the battalion um, landing team headquarters there was a Lebanese national living in there under the mm -hmm. steps that sold snacks to everybody. And most people loved him, but who knows that he wasn't the guy, 
you know, because he had kids and his grandkids coming in there. And the Marines really loved him. But being on the outside of the wire looking in at him, you go like, hmm. And I've even had some Marine officers mention that to me, go, you know, what what were we thinking? But again, you kind of go in and and they were given a mission from the top, right? The administration, you know, the presidential administration of the United States is coming through the Department of Defense. I mean, it it's just, um, I've got Marines calling me, sorry, because I'm scheduling to go out on the road. It's a big week for us to, to get interviews. Um, We're going to Camp Lejeune for the yeah. anniversary, the yeah. 39th anniversary. Of yeah, that's right, uh, uh, next week, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, coming up this weekend. So um, they do a 6 a.m., 6.20, where they have a candlelight where all the names are read on the memorial of those that didn't come home. And then they have a formal service that afternoon. Um, and we, our foundation, hosts a burger night as a fundraiser and as just a way to bring all the Marines together as well. So it is a big weekend because he's also scheduling Marines to be interviewed while they're there that weekend for the 39th anniversary. Awesome. Uh, well, I, if we can just backtrack just a little bit, because obviously, Michael, um, for those who don't know you just by name, I mean, your career is extensive. Um, can we just talk a little bit? And we, we mentioned a little bit about your college and where. So, how did you then uh, um, get to that point where you have you were such a resource before jumping into this thing full blow, like how, what was your journey like to this point that made you such a, uh, I guess, you know, a, a belly button for all this stuff to happen even before uh, you committed yourself fully to this project? I think I'd like a term like Renaissance man or something better than- Yeah, I like, let's go but with that. I, I like that also. I like that, spot <laughs> on. Definitely. That's what we're using. We're using that. I I do a lot of stuff because I've had to. You know, it's just it's just having the hustle. I'm not a college graduate. I'm a guy that's just been guilty of following his bliss all the time. And you just end up, you know, finding jobs where you don't really need a resume. You know, <laughs> it's like you know, it's like if you um if you need a roof on your house and the guy comes and shows you're missing shingles, you just hire the guy that says he can put the roof on the house, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't say, let me see your degree in roofing. Yeah. So that's kind of how the the working in the film business works. You know, I I had been a um Whitewater River, I'd been a construction worker. I'd gone to college a year at WVU. I couldn't figure out how to pay for that and do you know, and party and drink hard and you know like all very important steps yeah yeah so i just um you know i've done a lot of different things but the it's just bizarre how much i feel like to be to tell this story or just be a documentary person you know i've kind of been in training my whole life like the time as a graphic artist well we use that all the time we come up with fundraising brochures and it just works out i can make them look nicer than the average person maybe you know i'm not saying i'm i'm not saying by doing everything you get great at anything but you know how to do a lot of stuff and and something like this you wear a lot of hats you know i mean one of the hats you wore was npr so that's nothing to sneeze at i you know yeah i mean i feel very fortunate that i stumble through life and occasionally step in something really cool (laughs) and and they recruited me you know so 
basically I've just been me. And then they liked it that I was a storyteller. You know, um, a guy named Noah Adams was in West Virginia writing a book um, on the New River because he's from Appalachia and um, he's from Kentucky, right on the Ohio River. And he wanted to write this book. And then friends of mine, you know, a friend of mine that was one of the owners of a river company. I was already in California following that bliss, working in the film business. Um, and again, that weird thing, you know, the guy falls in love with his first crush he ever had, who I'm sitting in our house right now, you know, but I'm dating this girl in Ohio. So I'm thinking, you know, I, you know, I knew I could hang with the Hollywood guys. Really, that's how it is. You know, I don't know how people stay in one career. God bless, you know, the guys who can stay in the military. But once you figure out you can do it, like I'm this kind of person that gets kind of bored, you know, so I'm. You know, I'm like, well, I'll go and see what I can do in Ohio. You know, I was actually going to drive a train. I actually got passed all the tests for Norfolk and Southern. Whoever whoever thought that, you know. Um, but, yeah, I ended up marrying this girl. But I was on my way of, you know, dating. And then my friend knew I was in Ohio. Somebody said, hey, this guy's writing a book. You're a homeboy on the river. You're good on the river. You're p my people worked in the coal mines there. So I would always tell this in-depth history to shine the light on them, you know? He said, you can help Noah with the history of his book. Come in, I won't pay you, but I'll feed you. And I'll, you know, and I'm like, dude, you don't have to even feed me. I'll come, you know, just to meet a guy like that. I didn't know NPR from a can of paint, to be honest with you at the time. Um, I know, you know, I know it now, but um, yeah, after that, spending some days with Noah Adams, who's just a great storyteller. And I didn't, I think it, it worked out that I didn't know him. So I just pranked him like I would any river guest or, you know, I just, told him, you know, it was like half truth and a bunch of horse shit that he would just dive into <laughs> because he thought it was the truth. I just had fun, you know, and um, I got a postcard from him a few weeks later. He's because uh, I told him, I said, dude, I'm moving to Columbus, Ohio. You've been everywhere. What can I do there? He goes, I can tell you to eat at the Bob Evans at 23 and 270. Bob Evans, yes. It's, it's the closest to the headquarters. That was his tip. But then I, I got a postcard from Noah that said, hey, you should do what we do. And by this time, I'm in California packing. I, I actually have all these books. So I just thought, man, I, why am I going to move everything? I got a little Volvo, you know, and I, I had a, I welded a um, trailer hitch on it to pull a U-Haul and the U-Haul guys weren't wanting to let me do it, you know, but I talked into a little U-Haul is all they would give me. So I started mailing stuff back, right? So, <laughs> um, he calls me or I said, yeah, I'm interested. And he calls me, he says, hey, let me get our executive producer, Ellen Weiss on the phone. He goes, and let's just talk to her a minute. And I said, well, okay, here's what I'm doing right now. And I talked about owning all this crap and mailing it and dealing with all my stuff and being a hoarder and shouldn't we just bury people with all their possessions so they're, you know, wouldn't that stimulate the economy? I'm like, just like the pharaohs of Egypt. Yes. Yeah, right? I thought it all made sense, and I'm, but I didn't know her. I just was me ranting away. And then she says, yeah, that sounds great. Write it up. <laughs> what just happened, man? You know what he goes, well, he said they like about, I forget what it was, 300 or 600 words. He goes, and then we'll hook it up so that you can get, um, you know, you can go in and record this. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So I wrote them something. They didn't even have any edits, you know. They did, said, sure, go in and do it. And I just remember I, my wife 
now my wife, she flew to California. We drove to Vegas to get married. It was just like, nice. so she she was coming in that day. I was getting ready to go to the airport and pick her up. And somehow I got turned around on La Cienega Boulevard and went the wrong direction. Anyway, I was late going in there. And the dude was like, he was just, he was done with me already, you know, the engineer. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't even know to put the headphones on, but I did know I'd been on enough like sets and stuff when he started like having a, you know, he just had to butt hurt with me and give me the stink eye. And I said, you know what? I said, it'd be great to have a glass of water. And then, and then I, knew it, I knew it was over. So I was just like, screw it. I'll just tell this to my friends. And and then that guy comes in after shaking my hand. He goes, oh, you're going to do great. He goes, you're a real cultural observer or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, no, man, I'm just telling you what, what's going on with me, you know? He's like, oh, I can't wait to hear your stuff. And then it was a long run. I don't know what it was, 10 or 12 years, you know, if I, wow. I would give him a story. But then the real honor of it was to be around people like Noah Adams, to get to know people like Noah's wife, Nina Ellis, who's an author herself, who is a produ- was a producer, a guy named Art Silverman, who is my producer. And then again, they never hit it hard like you would maybe if you went to college to be a writer or something, I don't know, a grading paper. But they would give me little things that kept me between the ditches. And at that time, they liked NPR. I, I wish they had more of this. They liked having people who were commentators. You know, like I miss like Andre Cadescu and Bailey White and... Baxter Black or, you know, just these people they used to have on there just to tell a story. But you know how it is. They got rich and that changes you. And um, but who was it? Ray Kroc's wife died, left him a bunch of money. They went yeah. serious news and politics, man. It's just terrible. But they have to get so much money through Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So I that's with the film. We're trying to raise all the money. It is, it's not a finished documentary, it's in progress. And part of that raising money and doing it is to do it so the Marines are happy and that's their story. It doesn't, it doesn't get, even PBS, I know once you take completion funding, they're gonna give you notes, right? They're, they're gonna, so we're trying to keep it its own thing um, as long as possible. There's certain things we're trying to do as long as possible. Like, again, like Elisa mentioned, no narration. Well, we might come to a spot where we need narration because, again, we're fitting a lot into, like, what is probably going to max out at a two-hour documentary. Mm-hmm. So maybe you have to have a little bit of stuff, you know? I don't yeah. know. We're trying not to because yeah. the other thing is the politics of the times. We don't want anybody saying, ah, oh, but that was written and leans this way or leans yeah. that way. We're not leaning anyway. We're, we're not com- leaning anyway. We're committed yeah. to telling the truth, and the truth is of the people that were there, you know? Yeah, and then let the viewers formulate their own opinions or their own stance after watching it or how they feel after watching the documentary. But our intent is not to sway them one way or another. Our intent is to let these Marines tell their story. It's so historically significant and, um, you know, and learn from it, you know? That's, that's our intent. Well, yeah, I, oh, go, ahead, me, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. But let me be honest, Sue. So I, being in the commercial world, I always made work that you knew what you wanted the viewer to do. You know, like there was a time there, I stole this from a lady at Leo Burnett, but I, I would say, when people say, what do you do? I say, well, I manipulate the wishes, wants, and desires of the American public. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to manipulate this, but at the end of it, we know there's things we want, and it's real simple. It's for the Beirut 
everyone who served in Beirut. Yes, the Marines, but the Navy, the mm-hmm. soldiers that were there, uh, that, you know, there's soldiers killed in the bombing, right? That yeah. aren't, you don't think about it, but yeah. yes, everybody there. It wasn't just the Marine bombing, you know? Right. Um, everybody in the two embassy bombings that perished, mm-hmm. everybody that was taken hostage. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a lot of Americans in there were trying to shine that light on. And and the the thing with that is, yeah, it's um we want them recognized, number one. There's mm-hmm. so many people now that if probably if you're younger than 45, you might not know Jack about Beirut. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think once you see what a Marine is and the Marine doctrine and everything, and then the rules they had to play under. Like they're gonna, you're gonna respect them. So then I think that's why it is a good fit with the Beirut Veterans of America has been very good about endorsing this project um, because their their mission is that people will always remember. But I think we're giving them the device within the film to say, okay, you're recognized, you're respected, people are gonna remember. So yeah. that's, that's our- with them with them telling their own stories. You honestly feel a personal connection to them. Um, you have to sit and view it, but this last segment that Michael did, when you're sitting and I did have a, a few um, friends, I just wanted to, to just watch it, not in the Marine family. And they said the connection that you feel, you want more. You want to know where these Marines ended up. What are they doing now? You, you, you honestly feel a connection to them because they are being themselves. They're being who they are. They're, they're sharing their experience that made them who they are, you know, and um, it's important for America to see that. And I mean, mainstream America, I think military people, you know, they serve, they've gone through boot camp, they have somewhat of an understanding, but for, you know, a nice family of four or for, you know, anyone like that to come in and watch this documentary, I, I would hope that they leave understanding that that these Marines wanted their story told for a reason, that they want to be remembered. They want the ones that didn't come home to be remembered because they live with that every day. So the connection that Michael is doing through his creativity um, is, is amazing. Not just, it's just absolutely amazing that he can bring that to the viewer and that he can have these Marines share their story so comfortably because it's not an easy thing to sit in front of a camera. And I witnessed it. I've been on a couple of interviews with him and, um, you know, it's very hard for them. So um, to do it gracefully and to do it um, where it's going to make an impact on the viewer is really something extraordinary. Sure. I mean, Marines are infamous about being really awful at talking yeah. about yourself, you know, as a, uh, you know, coming up through the officer ranks, you know, I mean, trying to get the Marines to like, hey, help, like, tell me about your accomplishments or like, let's sit down in a counseling session. Let's talk about what you've done. They're like, I'm just doing my job, sir. Like, exactly. Yes and no. You are doing a lot of really awesome stuff. Like, let's really tease that out, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Isn't that crazy kind of, Vic, if I can jump in here real quick? Isn't it kind of crazy how the Marines, like, build, like, self-reliance, like, independence in you? Like, all Marines can go out and make decisions. At the same time, you're sitting there like, well, I was just doing my job. I was just doing what I was doing. Like, how is that that two sides of the same coin? It's, like, so prevalent. It's something I've noticed. Anywho, sorry, that was just one of Jab that in there. You hit on something phenomenal there, Nick, because the thing is, part of this Marine doctrine— the leadership that's taught and the um what's the word the autonomous leadership like you know if the guy in front of you goes down that's given orders you start giving orders and the marines back your play 
It's like the thing is, pick up and go. You're the leader now. You make the decisions. And you know what? We'll sort it out on the back end. But don't hesitate. Don't wait. You're a leader. Everybody that I've talked to, they're programmed for leadership. But then you get to a place like a Beirut that's the politics is where the leadership comes from. And I think that's part of why it's been a black eye with the Marines. This is my speculation, and I'm doing everything I can to keep my voice and my opinions out of it, which is, you know, get to be pretty strong as you talk to everybody. You you know, you can't help if you have any empathy at all to empathize. But that thing where you got you got the experts of our military and you got the experts in the Marines, but nobody's listening from Washington and their minds made up. And even when the situation changes, the mission didn't change. Mm -hmm. And there are guys that'll take my head off that it's called we came in peace because they hate they came in peace. They hate we came in peace. And the truth is it wasn't a peacekeeper mission. It was called a presence mission. And they came up with the peacekeeper name down the road. But you know, the whole idea was you put the Marines in there when in the world would you tell me, you know, Vic, you're a Marine. When do you go in and take the low ground, right? So you're going to go in and be at in the center of the bullseye at the airport. That's not what the Marines are about, wanted to do, ever thought about doing. It came from above the Marine Corps. And I think that must be why it's been a black eye in the Marine Corps, because the Marines know it was kind of out of their hands. And, and yeah, why talk about it? If if you had your hands tied at every level, I mean, of course, you get up in the flag officers, those guys aren't going to say, well, we had our hands tied. It sucked. They're just going to go on. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you, they, Vic, as a Marine, why? Why is it such a black eye? I, I, I am wildly underqualified to talk about. But I guess from my perspective and I guess what I wanted to talk about a little it as it relates is it seems to me that Beirut was, you know, we talk about people being ahead of their time or a story that was told, you know, ahead of its time. And so it didn't necessarily resonate with the, the, its moment in history uh, as it was presented. Uh, You know, look at, I, I was a huge sci-fi fan. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of sci-fi stuff that when you look at now, you're like, man, that was really ahead of its time. Uh, and, and it just didn't land. You know, anyways, that's pop culture stuff. But I feel like Beirut in a lot of ways is sort of emblematic of that because it personified so much of what we've just came out of with the long war. Um, and it was also, you know, there are echoes of it in Somalia. There are echoes of it uh, to a certain extent in Bosnia, East Timor, um, what we would consider like a brush fire conflict or a, a low impact sort of conflict, not a full on war. But I mean, we've been um, in Korea to a certain extent, Vietnam for sure. And so there are all of these echoes throughout history, but yet we sort of, in a lot of ways, treat these campaigns and these moments and times as if that's all they were. It was just a moment in time. We mm-hmm. don't look at all of the ways that these things have rippled, um, where they repeat, where things and themes and and life just echoes and repeats itself in so many ways. And so we don't, we, you know, I, I think, Michael, to your point, I mean, Beirut maybe was a black guy because we were never on the offensive. 
um, because of the mission and the really awful ROEs that they were given and how it was politically driven, but there was no end state, like strategically, where did it fall in place? Um, General uh, La Riviere, uh, who was, is part of your docu documentary, mm -hmm. wrote an article for Gazette that sort of chronicles in his yeah, objective. That a great article, Mission Impossible. That's yeah, it. yeah. He talks about all of this stuff um, and how it was just a sort of a quagmire. And I mean, mm -hmm. look at Afghanistan and and look at sort of the ending parts of Iraq. And and so anyways, I, I don't know where I necessarily, this is a fully formed thought clearly, but I do feel like Beirut was that jump off point where we really had we not ignored it. Mm -hmm. It really could have helped influence so much of our foreign policy and our employment of Marines and, and, you know, just having a presence just isn't enough a lot of times. And okay. maybe we get a little too caught up in this Marine Corps, you know, like you said, we, we weaponize pride. Hey, if we put the Marines in there, everybody's just going to shut the fuck up, right? Like, yeah. no, you'd become another tribe. You just are the strongest tribe. Yeah. Um, and everybody wants to bring down the big dog um, because you're messing with power and you're messing with thousands and thousands of years of history that we have no context for, yeah. even if we try to understand it academically, once you're there, it's tactile and it's real and it's mm -hmm. hard. And oh, by the way, I'm leaving in seven months. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's just so complicated. And so when we ignore the complexities of what was happening at Beirut, we're doomed to repeat them again and again and again and again. Uh, I don't know. Fuck, I'm on my soapbox. This isn't the Vic show, but you guys, uh, everything is so great. I guess just sort of on a on a more, I guess, uh, practical aspect. How has it been for you guys to do this during the pandemic? I know you've talked about it's sort of a seven year project. You still have a lot more in the works. You guys are talking about, you know, reaching out to some of the French and some of the international folks who are also there that also were uh, in, impacted by this. Um, you know, Beirut was just such a tumultuous time. Right. Uh, I mean, we're looking at Iran now and, oh, you know, it's, it's just crazy. But um, what was it like to be able to try to do all of this where you are focusing so much on the Marines and having the Marines voices be the primary medium. How has it been with you guys in the pandemic? Um, well, challenging, of course, but you overcome the challenges because we really were diving in right about when COVID um, started, you know, uh, escalating is when we wanted to reach out to Colonel Garrity. You know, we wanted to start with um, we call them the three G's, Colonel Garrity, Lieutenant Colonel Gerlach, and General Gray. And um, the, the pandemic, I think the world changed um, with COVID. And we've tried to adjust, adapt <laughs> as well as we could to the situation so we could get the, these interviews done because um, a lot of us are getting older. A lot of the people that we're trying to interview are getting older, especially the three G's. And we wanted to Definitely try and start off with them. And uh, as Michael said, it would be very impactful to start off with Colonel Garrity. He could be his own documentary himself, um, everything that he's gone through in his military career. But we um, we were cautious. 
I think that we kept going. We were cautious. We did. We practiced all the protocols. Um, you know, uh, Michael makes it a point to usually interview in the person's home if they feel more comfortable. Or, you know, for somewhere an event, we try and have a nice venue that's comfortable and accommodating for them. Um, as well as making sure that if we need to be masked, we're masked. If we need to be vaccinated, we'll go that route. You know, so it didn't stop us from our mission. It, if anything, it just, um, you know, maybe uh, just made us more aware that there's a pandemic going on. We need to be very mindful because we don't want to, we don't want to make anyone uh, sick and we don't want them vice versa, you know, but uh, we kept going. So despite the pandemic, um, we have been able to adapt our uh, way of filmmaking, Michael's way of filmmaking, that we've made it um, productive and um, made it very, very meaningful in content. And I think Michael can elaborate on that. Well, I mean, imagine, you know, like making a documentary. So you have things you want to do. Yeah, we want to get the French. Well, as much as getting the French, there was one guy I wanted to get who was in Paris who just passed away, a journalist named Claude Salhani, mm -hmm. who ran the UPI station in Beirut before the Americans got there. You know, I mean, this guy got shot. He got wounded when Israel happened to bomb their headquarters. You know, it, it goes on and on, everything he went through. Incredible, um, you know, combat journalist, an incredible guy. And it was just so hard to even talk to him because you're using Skype and you're using, you know, it, 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 it was a tough, it was a tough thing and we lost him, you know, unfortunately he passed before I could get to him. Um, and so, yeah, you raise a little money and you do what you can do. Luckily, um, luckily we had, a, you know, it's all these, it's Marines, man. Like we have a guy named Pal who I got to mention during this, who's a, a air wing guy that was attached to the 1-8, the 24 male. He was there for the bombing, but you know, Kurt, it, had um, his own, put his own skin in the game, had his own money, but he, his dad was uh, interviewed for a World War II oral history project, and he had approached a guy in, um, who's the membership director at the BBA, a guy, Richard Truman, and said, well, can't we do some kind of project? So it just worked out that we got Kurt to help us and 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 give us the, actually, it was the first donation, and we got, you know, two, spent two days with Colonel Garrity, who at the time, he and his wife had just had COVID. Mm -hmm. Had it. We can't catch it. Come on. Yeah. So I, I just, you know, we can't stress enough. Like when you say, well, how in the world did you guys hook up? I have to say, it felt like the angels are driving the bus because Kurt has the idea. He goes, you know what? He goes, really, the Beirut Marines belonged to Al Gray, General Al Gray. He goes, and I'll reach out to General Gray. Because if you have Al Gray, people will know it's legit, mm -hmm. but they'll also know, like, that guy will want to be in there, I think, because he, yeah. you know, and then, you know, and then you realize when you start reading, you know, about Al Gray and before I even met him, what a brilliant man he is and still mm -hmm. clicking at 93. So what was the chances a 93-year-old man in the middle of the pandemic would let us come to his home? Right. You know but, he, but did. he sure did it, you know, he and he did. sure, you know, he loves the Beirut Marines. And, you know, the, the great thing I'll say about the Marine Archives is that oral history project, because there are people I can't get. But when I do research and I read um, General Bernie Trainer, you know, his 
oral history. And he talks about he and Al Gray sitting in a room and PX Kelly was just his, it sounds like his head was exploding. He was so pissed off. He was in the room for about a minute, you know, or a few <laughs> minutes. But, you know, um, Bernie Trainer and Al Gray were figuring out who was going to take the hit. They were fighting over who was going to take the hit because they realized Congress was going to want to scapegoat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Bernie Trainer was like, I'm on the Hill all the time. I'm at the end of my career. They all know me. I'm easy. And Al Gray was like, oh, hell no. Those are my Marines. I put those mouths together. Um, it's me. And then, you know, and, and I don't know all this detail probably won't make it the two hours. But, you know, when I interview Al Gray and he said, no, I sat outside the Long Commission for nine hours. They wouldn't let me talk. You know, you just you see how these the, the quality of these guys and then it's no surprise. Well, of course, he would let us in his house, you know, to talk about this. And of course, He's he's a warrior, man. He wrote war fighting, right? He's not the guy that's going to worry about. He's not going to let a damn pandemic stop him. And I he think he didn't. He was and, so and inviting. It, yeah, his his home is like a a marine museum museum in and of itself. Oh sure, I'm, I can from, imagine. From his library to his restroom, you know, I'm in the restroom and I have all these little marine statues looking at me. <laughs> I'm like, this is incredible. I'm in the bathroom and I have all these marines that are like surrounding me. <laughs> Didn't have a scarlet toilet, did he? Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. You flush it plays uh you know hauls them off the zoo. But but it's also when I learn about him, I feel like we're doing the right thing because yeah, we we're gonna have the former commandant of the Marines in this but also that that mortar man, that 60 millimeter mortar guy, you know, is going to be in there with the same weight. This, you know, like and and it was yeah. cool. it's cool to know um, a, a general and commandant of the Marines like Al Gray. I, I've everywhere I run into somebody and I see the Marine logo, you know, Marines are the greatest recruiting device ever because it's going to be on their truck or their hat or, you know, but I, but I tell them um, what I'm up to. And it's funny, the Al Gray stories and especially enlisted guys that say, Oh no, he came to this base and the officers got so mad because he ran all the officers out and just talked to all of us enlisted and really listened to us. So I'm like, yeah, perfect. You know, perfect. We got out great, but we're we're listening to the guy. His story is just as valuable. And and what went on later in life, a lot of those guys, just like Dan Brown, um, talked to Elisa, you know, they don't know the whole story of why they were even there to mm-hmm. this day. Because a lot of guys, it's been so painful. I don't know that somebody could have made this documentary five years ago because there's so many guys that are just now talking about it. Right, right. And to let you know, so we've I've I've as a sidebar talked to the three chaplains that were there on October 23rd and asked them about PTSD. And I've talked to two therapists who specialize with veterans because I don't want to do something that messes people up worse than they are what they're already going through. And everyone's told me this is a tough time because at the end of someone's career and this is going to translate to all veterans i'm sure at the end of your career your career's wound down now your family your kids are grown and gone you got time on your hands this is for you too vic because it's that day's coming where everything you keep in that box at a certain age that lid starts coming off the box because you have that time so these guys are saying this is very important and it's important the way we're doing it to let people talk because really that's the only medicine that really works. And 
And, you know, I know you're way more aware of this than I am, but I know a lot of guys have told me, yeah, you go to the VA and they'd write you a prescription. That doesn't get to it. You know, you got to talk about it. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm liking the part of it that I feel like we're not just documenting the story. And I feel like this is coming from the angels. It's going to help people stimulate the conversation. And in my mind, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's about the Beirut veterans. It's about the Gold Star families. But you know who it's really about is the future Marine. And and I don't know why it didn't happen. I don't know why it was a black eye. But I'm sorry, but with remember 9-11, you know, remember Pearl Harbor, there should be a remember Beirut in there. Yeah. The, you know, there really should. And the thing is, when you find out, when you read the history and you read about remember the Alamo, that's a complete manufactured story. The John Wayne version of Remember the Alamo is nothing, no accuracy whatsoever, but it helped this nation, right, that was building and acquiring new territory. It, it helped motivate people. But um, one, one thing I want to say, and this came from Major Bob Jordan, we've had so many good people help, you know, like, we, again, it's the angels. There's a guy named Jeff Hammond, who is the official unofficial historian of the Beirut veterans, who who is part of the family. He wasn't there, but boy, he, he knows everything. He's been my mother from another brother to help me. I couldn't, you know, there, there's been a, so many folks like that. But Bob Jordan, you know, his thing was, hey, you know, we call it an act of terrorism, how about we look at this as the beginning of World War III? We look at what happened in Beirut being an attack on American, America or even starting in the embassy in Iran in 79. And we go, this is the beginning of a different type of war because this could be the radicalized Muslim war attacking the West. And it's just slow rolling. What we're calling an act of terrorism is really an act of war. It's just nobody puts that together and, you know, it, that made so much sense to me, because when you've got people that have fought each other for thousands of years, it is slow rolling. Right. So I don't know. Will it be a different way to look at things? I sure hope so. Just so everybody checks every box before the next sons and daughters and mothers and brothers and dads get sent somewhere on a political, you know, on a political slash military mission, which they all are political slash military, right? I'll, I'll get off the soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah, we've, that was awesome. You guys got Vic up on his soapbox earlier. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's, let's just all let's just take turns. Yeah, yeah. I don't really have a soapbox for Lebanon, but I'm sure I can find a soapbox to jump on here. Well, but I, I bet you do for things like PTSD and you know the effects of this. That it's 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 more than dropping a pebble in the water, but that analogy, you know, it spreads and it still is touching people every day, and it's still ripping through these families. And and I I've had friends of mine that are filmmakers. You know, if if you want to get rich in film, you don't really go out and make documentaries. Let's, let me say. <laughs> and friends of mine, knowing I'm a commercial director, go, dude, what are you doing? A story that's forty years old? Or so I said, no, not to the people that are involved in this. They live with this every day and every night. It's not 40 years. The time doesn't isn't a thing, really. I said, and those guys, when I start talking to the people that were there or or anybody or a gold star sister, you're taken back to when you're at whatever age when this goes down, you know. Mm -hmm. 
these guys, it's something to see somebody who's now 60 years old, 57 to 65 or whatever, were the enlisted guys. And they go back, it's that 18-year-old, that 19-year-old, that 20-year-old. So yeah, it's, um, but the thing is, I hope, I pray that what we do can make a difference for the next 18, 19, 20-year-old, the next generations. Because I, th I think there were so many times we got really lucky. Part of the luck was when the Marines were allowed to fight, they did such a good job because it could have escalated. It could have really gotten to be a lot more people killed. But these guys are so good. You guys, you know, you're so good at what you do. I mean, so part of me, the big part, and I want to say this, is like you walk away and you go, what did we do to deserve these Marines? And why would we ever tie their hands behind their back? You know? Yeah. And it's nice to hear that you guys are putting in like the time and the effort, too, because in the in the day we live in right now, this post-Tiger King world, if you want to call it that, where everybody all the streaming services everybody's trying to pump out these cheap fast documentaries that are just really shallow and don't really touch anybody uh it's refreshing that you guys are taking the effort like you said a seven-year project like I, the second one of elisa's uh career i guess counting uh american brother um uh it's i hope that uh you guys stand out from the crowd and just like head and shoulders above the rest and everyone can find you yeah. um but it's, 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 well, you know, you, you can feel the heart and the soul kind of behind the process here. Well, and the, cool, the yeah. cool thing is, though, the biggest donors have been Marines. One guy has been very, very generous who's a Beirut Marine. And I'm not going to say his name because I realized that could send everybody in the world after him for money. You know, <laughs> not that we're trying to keep it all, but I just, the, you know, the, the generosity of people to, to help us tell the story because in my mind, you know, as the guy putting the film together, I, I envision this big, you know, the mansion that these guys deserve to live in, right? And it's funny because it, it comes down to talking to people. We had people agreeing to be in this and showing up that are people we just imagined and talked about and said, yeah, this is the right person. And then guess what? They show up. And then somehow... We go, where is going to come from? Right. And money shows up. Or Leatherneck does an article. Or you guys do a podcast. It's, it's a gaining momentum. And I yeah. think it's gaining momentum because of organizations like Leatherneck, podcasts like Scuttlebutt, that you're raising awareness. And that awareness um, affirms to these Beirut Marines, it's really happening. Our story is really going to be told. Because there have been attempts to do this in the past. Um, I know two attempts to do this and they never, they never got out of the gate. So I think um, I'm so appreciative to you all and Leatherneck Magazine that you're raising awareness that we are out of the gate. And um, I told General Gray, you know, he looked at me leaving and I said, you know, I can assure you we're going to do this with grace and dignity or we won't do it at all. And he pointed his finger and he said, yes, you better. You know, <laughs> I said, yes, sir. You know, I walked out of there really scared. <laughs> but um, that's and that's the whole way that we're approaching this. And I think um, we have so many people to be thankful for that are stepping up and Michael's creativity and the angels bringing us together and my brother, God rest his soul that, um, you know, I, I honestly think that there was some divine intervention here, but um, their story will be told and we're getting older and uh, we want to make sure that we get this out. You know, um, we want to do it right. As Michael said, we want to create a 
quality film first. So um, I used to tell my second graders, I want your best work, not your quickest work. So yeah, it's gonna take a little bit of time, but um, hopefully where people are seeing that we're trying to do it as gracefully as we can and um, in honor of the ones that didn't come home and the ones that live with it every day, um, you know, we, we, we totally respect, just respect each one of them. And uh, when I was asked in Pooler, Georgia, can you do something? Literally, Michael's right. It was 90 seconds. I was on the phone going, okay, Michael, let's roll forward march. <laughs> and kind of future casting here a little bit. So you guys are targeting the 40th anniversary for release. Is that still on the table? Michael? So still a premiere. Well, so yeah, this is a this is a sticking point because it is tough with the pandemic, with people you try to get, with things you need to license, which is very expensive, which is still, you know, it's all, it, like money really is the grease of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to have it. So and and to make the film that the not just the Beirut Marines, all Marines deserve, right? This is part of the history that's been this black hole. It's time to tell that story. To to get it right, it takes time. But what we're going to do, we're going to have a feature length film to show and it's going to be a private viewing and i'll do my best to get what they call a festival license on thing but everything might not be licensed then the film will be there to watch but the other thing that's really important for people to know it's not the michael ivy telling of the story it's the marine story it's me taking everybody's story and put together so we also see that as an excellent time to show it in jacksonville get gold star families get Marines that were there and get feedback. So before it goes out in the world, everybody gets to be a collaborator. Mm. I, I tell everybody, I said, you know, and it's the truth. You're not just an inner somebody I'm interviewing. You're a collaborator because it really is your story. And I think it shocks a lot of people and some people don't trust it. Well, they trust it after they tell me something and I do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the, you know, I had a hard time getting here, getting to do it because I realized how tragic and how painful it is. Mm -hmm. And now I'm completely saying this, this has got to have the accuracy mm -hmm. and which is tough, you know, because it's a story told through recollection. But and that's another thing you got to raise money. And I'm keeping interviewing people because I feel like if people almost finish each other's sentences telling a story, mm -hmm. it builds up the accuracy as a viewer. You trust it mm -hmm. more. Yeah. yeah, and and to try and help you get to that goal here in a year, because it's pretty much exactly a year away, right? So, um, where would people need to go to support uh, We Came in Peace? Um, well, um, there's two two avenues. Um, we are on social media, and if you visit AmericanBrotherFoundation.org, um, that has a direct link to the We Came in Peace .us website and um, together there's information, there's ways of donating, um, there's updates. As Michael said, the segments that we're showing, the film is constantly evolving. It's morphing into, you know, this beautiful end product, but um, it is a continuous process. Um, we're on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, American Brother Foundation. Um, we're accessible through our, our emails, um, as well, and um, and we we I have to say we both answer every one of them. I know Michael does, and I know um, I have notifications on my phone, and I definitely I try and respond 
because um, it's important. It's important, and I want them to know that it matters. Their voice matters. So we will we will do whatever we can to make sure that we return a call, we return the conversation, we meet with them, we talk to them. Um, you know, I think for me, I want them to know that they matter. They matter. They're here and they matter. Where my brother isn't, they are. This really matters. And if I happen to miss getting back to somebody, because again, you're wearing all the hats, you know, um, hit me up again because I'm listening and I, and I, and you're listening. a part of it. You know, and and the other thing is what what's happening now. It, it's you know we're building trust with people because there's a lot of people. You know, why would they trust me? You know, well after a few people talk to you, then they vouch for you. Like, hey, this guy's talked to some people, and and you know, I mean, um, but now people are coming forward. I just had somebody who said, hey, I got all my dad's letters, you know, and and I'm looking. I'm still a sponge. You know, I'm asking for the actual. Because licensing, part of the reason licensing is very expensive, we want to license stuff because I want it to still be a time capsule, a very unique time, that early 80s, right? Because um, that arguably was the height of the Cold War. You had planes being shot down. You had a missile scare in September of 83. The Russians almost pushed the button on us from a com computer glitch. You still had Russia and the United States as we do today, right, with Ukraine, these missiles are aimed at each other. So to, to make people aware of that time, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have, you know, licensing, let's just say for songs, like Marines have told me, is like, oh, no, we sang Benny in the Jets as we were yeah. on patrol, but we said Begin in the Jets, you know? <laughs> guys said, oh, Bad Out of Hell was our song, Meatloaf. You know, I mean, <laughs> anything we could do to have news reports, whatever, but also... And this works out good like this because it keeps up the authenticity. People are, you know, I'm scanning pictures. They're giving me pictures. Now there's letters. And really, so I'm a sponge for anything Beirut. So as well as financially, guess what? You um, you can help with the stuff because, you know, and, and I'm directing people a lot. I'm, I'm high on them. I don't know why I'm high. I just feel like it's the right thing to do. The Carolina Museum of the Marine is going to be in Jacksonville. You know, they got 26 million to build a building. Al Gray's involved. So I know it's all on the up and up, but nobody loves these Beirut Marines like Jacksonville. Jacksonville built the memorial, right? Yeah. So, so I'm just, I'm hoping these guys kind of find a home there for their stuff, but also to go while they're still here, I've heard their passion and, and what they tell me. I mean, this was an undeclared war, but these guys were fighting firefights like Vietnam level firefights that were unreported because it, you know, you had an administration that didn't want to enact the War Powers Act. They didn't want Congress involved, which any student of history knows that led to Iran Contra. You know, there's all these, there's all these dominoes that fall in there. But you know, the sad thing is these Beirut vets, my heart goes out to them because when you talk to somebody that put four kids through college, and if Beirut had been looked at like a combat operation or whatever the correct terminology is, his kids would have qualified for money to go to college. Mm. Now, from what I understand, that rule has been changed. But just think of those guys. You come home. Nobody's talking about it. You didn't get decorated with ribbons you would have gotten had you even been on the float that went to Grenada and then Beirut, right? You, I mean, you didn't get – and then you – you have other Marines say, oh, way to lose one. 
you were in Beirut, way to lose one. And then you find out that you're not getting these benefits for your family. I mean, sorry, but you know, you, you wonder, I guess, why is this guy doing it? Well, because I don't like to see the best of us get screwed. <laughs> and, and there's part of that. And I'm not saying that. That's not my opinion. That's these guys telling me that. It's finally time for their voice to be heard. And and, and it's time It's time as a country, you know, as a nation, we need to come together. We need to come together as a nation. And I think it's time that this story is told so, you know, Americans can see the cost that our military pays. I lost my brother. You know, I was at an event one day and I met a, a World War II veteran and it was his birthday. And I'm like, thank you so much for your service. Happy birthday. Thank you so much for your service. And he looked at me, he already knew who I was and that my brother died. And he looked at me, this frail little man, and he shook my hand and he reached over to hug me. And he said, no, thank you for your sacrifice. Mm. And that is truly what you know, hopefully some of this it can bring out also is that our freedom does come at a sacrifice. And mm -hmm. um, for these Marines that came home, you know, their hearts are broken and we need to embrace that and we need to share that with our country so we can be united. It's time that, you know, we become a united country. And if this is just a little piece of it that Michael can bring about through his creativity on this historical moment, you know, um, I don't want history to repeat itself. I want this to be something that is a lesson, you know, for our future Marines, um, you know, for, for our country as a whole to realize that it's really important that we we each feel connected, you know, in our country that we we need to love. We need to love each other. We need to love our country. And hopefully this is a way to show it um, in this beautiful story that Michael's putting together through the voices of the Marines that came home and to honor the ones that didn't. Because for me, this is all about my brother that didn't come home. Well, that, I mean, this has been so great. Um, and I mean, you can just feel the passion for this. And I so appreciate um, you guys coming into this the way that you have and, and sort of, I think that there's so much value in sort of the long road to this rather than, as you were mentioning, Michael, sort of that quick, or I guess Nick had mentioned it, you know, sort of this streaming video sort of mentality that we just have to get something out there because um, uh, we have to start worrying about the next thing. And, and the fact that you guys are so in the moment with this uh, and, and are so committed to doing it right. I mean, I, I just can't say enough. Uh, thank you. Um, and I have really enjoyed this, our conversation so much. This has been great. Well, now now we're hooked up. So, are you guys in Quantico? We are. Yep, so we are. Out when I come to the archives, I haven't made that stop yet. But yeah, stop by. We'll uh, do a follow up in studio. It's not, it, 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 we'll we'll give you the that grand tour fun. of our building that is. Uh, yeah, and this is live. So we've got you know six hundred people a week can verify that Michael, you said you were coming next time. Yeah. In, so. Yes. Yes. And, Absolutely. And for the record, so for the record, for me as. Uh, a filmmaker and just, you know, as a, as a American, you know, it's just so great to, it's an honor. It's beyond great. It's a great honor to be, play a part in telling this story because it does matter. And it doesn't just matter to the people that are here now, because again, 
all these veterans, I mean, a lot of these guys, the officers are in their 80s and the enlisting guys are all hitting 60. They're not going to be around long, but, you know, it's just how it is, right? A couple more decades, hopefully more. But I'm just saying to have something that will be a, a linear narrative of the timeline, tell their story. I hope it becomes a tool. And one thing we're talking about is, and the guy I mentioned at the first, Neil Duckworth, he said, hey, you know, I can help you write a syllabus once you get the film and it can be a college class, you know, you can offer it. And and there's and another thing we're gonna do is find the funding to keep an archive of this where it can live somewhere that's got, it's accessible to family members and scholars. Because you see so many documentaries, like I, I love the Band of Brothers show that mm -hmm. starts with the actual guys who were there. And you get to see them for like three minutes at the beginning of every episode. Wouldn't you love to hear the entire, you know, interviews with these guys? They're, you know, so I don't know. I hope we can do something that is one film, but it has legs to, you know, again, to make a difference on a lot of different levels. And, and I say it the whole time, I just hope we can make the film that the people who served their Marines, sailors, soldiers, um, diplomats, CIA, you know, the film that they deserve, you know? And one cool thing, there was one of the Marines who I said, I make sure the first thing I say is thank people for their service. I'm more aware of what that means now than ever in my life, even as somebody with a couple of siblings that are retired military, right? Now I get it. And, um, and one of the guys said back to me, he said, you were worth it. <laughs> so. Well, this has totally been worth it. Both of you, yeah. thank you so much for your time. This has been so great. And yeah, let's please, let's stay in touch. Um, especially as we get closer to the anniversary yeah. and let's yeah please keep us in the loop on what you guys are doing thank, thank you, guys. you guys so much we really really appreciate you guys um honestly thank you so much for helping us it means a lot thank you to everyone who's serving and thank you to all the names i didn't mention of the people just lack of time and brain fog you know of all the people that have helped us so far because we wouldn't be here without everybody else's help it's really been it's a it's a team effort you're just talking to two people but everybody's contributed it's it's really it's been amazing been tremendous the outpouring of love and support has been tremendous and as the days go by the momentum is picking up and we're seeing more people um you know come to us and uh it's just very humbling and um we just want to stay on track and do the best we can to produce the best documentary that honors everybody Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Mother Neck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.